We are in the middle of a, well, in the middle. It's going to be a long series. We're kind of at the beginning of a series we're calling Famous Last Words. And so we've been in the um, letter that John wrote to the church in Ephesus. Well, not, he's in Ephesus. He wrote to the churches in Turkey, Asia Minor. Um, we're been in First John. And so we're going to be in First John for seven more weeks. And then my plan is to jump into um, Ephesians, or not Ephesians, I'm a little scattered, hang on. Ecclesiastes, the famous last words of Solomon to his son. And then we'll probably be by the first of the year in 1 Timothy. Paul's last words, First and 2 Timothy. Last words to Timothy. And it's just kind of out of this theme that when you have nothing else to lose, and you're at the end of your life, or at the end of what's going to happen, um, what would you share with people? And so John has shared with us um, several things. Like last week we talked about sin. We talked about um, what it is to know that we sin. And we don't deny that. We acknowledge it, but yet we run to the cross in that. And so, but there was a line in there that was about God being good. So the line is in verse 5, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. That's a huge statement. That God is good and there's no darkness in him at all. And we sang just a few minutes ago about God's sovereign hand helping me walk upon the waters. And so if God is sovereign and he's in control, and he is in charge of everything, then how do you deal with evil? How do you deal with the bad that happens to each other, the bad that we do to each other? You know, I was a history major, and so I know the depth, the depth of the depravity of what humanity has done to itself over the centuries. So where is God in that? How do we, how do we justify our faith along with our history? How do we do that? And so that's the question of the day. Is God good? Can you really trust him? So we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into that very question. It's one of the linchpins of our faith. You'll hear people say, God is good. And people will reply, all the time. And all the time, God is good. And I believe that. 110% believe that. Then how do you walk with people as they're in the middle of their pain in that? Do you just say that to them? Um, I've tried to make it one of the requirements for our elders. They haven't really approved it yet. I think Brian's okay with it. That if you would say things like that to each other, like if you would just walk into some of their pain and say, God's good, isn't he? Um, then you should be slapped. And it'll be the, the elder's responsibility to do the slapping. It's kind of what I'm pushing for, but I don't know if we can get that approved or not. It's about a ministry of presence. Like how do you walk into that space? How do you know the truth? How are you equipped to share that truth with people? Because if you just walk in with platitudes and you just walk in with God works all things to his glory, which he does, but you just say that, um, that's not very helpful. So I hope to equip you a little bit today. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time. Um, Thank you for that worship set um, that really spoke to my heart. And I pray that you would help me um, as we walk out on the waters of something pretty deep and heavy that you would help me to speak the truth of your word. I've, I've got nothing. All I have is the holy word that you have written and you've entrusted to be taught. And so I pray, Lord, that your spirit would fall through the very words you've written and you would help us to see the goodness of who you are. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So I thought I would start with um, a video by the guy, a guy by the name of Tim Keller. And he's going to help with a piece of where we're going. So I want you to hear someone that's very smart and more eloquent speaker than I have, would ever claim to be. 
just address one of the linchpins. Because we have to get in our brains this idea of some logic and how, how we approach this question. Because if we just read the news, they're going to say, how could a good God let this happen? But you, you have to start thinking deeply about this or you're just going to be kind of floundering. So I'm going to let him speak about this about three or four minutes. He's uh, being interviewed by an atheist, an uh, academic at Columbia University in New York. Um, he does these things around the country. We had one here at the University of Wyoming um, last year. It wasn't Tim Keller, but it was a man through the Veritas Forum. Veritas is Latin for truth. And they will show up on college campuses and they'll do some talking. The man that came here was talking about um, biology and genetics and DNA. Um, but Tim Keller, was off, he often gets just asked questions about the bigness of God. So we'll watch this and then we'll continue. Yeah, you, went, you went to Catholic school. The Christian view of God is very different than the other views of God because the Christian view of God is that God came down, came into this world, and suffered. Now, I have a cat, and my wife and I love our cat. And we, we, we actually saw it once. We broke its leg by accident. <laughs> but we fixed it <laughs> for only $1,000. <laughs> Which we never in a million years would have thought we would ever do for a, for a cat. But well, you broke it. So. We broke the cat. <laughs> You're kind of morally obligated. And I, it opinion. suffered. It suffered. However, I think it's fair to say, because it doesn't have the same kind of self-consciousness, I, I would say that a human being suffering is probably at least sort of a, some kind of higher order. You're more aware of things. You're, you know, it's, it's, there's more agony than a, than a... If God really came to earth in Jesus Christ, then, and the suffering he went through on the cross voluntarily would have been far beyond my suffering. Now, what does that do? It is not... We, even after you believe that God would have come down and become vulnerable to suffering and death, that does not yet give us an answer to the question of what the reason is that God allows evil and suffering. But it does tell us what the reason isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us or he wouldn't have come down and gotten involved. It can't be that he doesn't care or he wouldn't be involved. I don't know what the reason is he hasn't stopped it yet. But it can't be a lack of, it can't be a remoteness. It can't be indifference or he wouldn't have come and gotten down involved. Now that assumes you believe the gospel. But if you believe the gospel, what it does is it keeps off the idea of indifference and says, I don't know why he hasn't stopped evil and suffering. But whatever the reason is, it can't just be indifference, hardness of heart, or, or lack of Well, heart. have you thought about it in terms of, you know, the reason? I mean, why, I didn't, didn't, why, why didn't he come down and stop the Holocaust? I don't know. But now, at this point, at this point, you, you've, got for, you've got to ask this, yourself a question. If you can't think of a reason, does that mean there really can't be one? That's the Alvin Plantinga. Right. You heard, have you heard the no seems? Oh, this is good. You'll like this. Okay. Lay it on me. All right. Well, now, you know, you're an academic, so you realize philosophers talk like this. Neither of us are really philosophers, but you do know how they talk. I do indeed. Okay. He says, if you look into a pup tent and I ask you, do you see any St. Bernard's? And if you don't see any St. Bernard's, you say, no, I don't see any St. Bernard's, then we can safely conclude there probably are no St. Bernard's in the tent. Because if there were a St. Bernard in the tent, you'd probably see it. But I said, if you look into, the, into a pup tent, and I say, do you see any noceums? Now, noceums, if you live near the Great Lakes, are little gnats that come, are so small they come through the screen and bite you anyway. And I said, so if you look into the pup tent, 
and I say, do you see any noceums? And you say, no, I don't see any noceums. I don't see any noceums. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't any noceums in there, because if there were, you couldn't see them. <laughs> and he says, now, when you say, because I can't think of any good reason why God would continue to allow evil and suffering to happen, therefore there can't be one, you're assuming that whatever reasons there would be would be more like St. Bernard's than noceums. Well, why should there be? Mm. I mean, it, what he's, uh, and, uh, and he says this is probably cold comfort. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ coming into the earth and coming alongside of us, it's cold comfort. But what he's saying is you can't assume that just because you can't think of a good reason why God hasn't stopped it yet, there can't be any. And then the gospel says, well, whatever that reason would be, it, would be, uh, it can't be a lack of love. Now, I know that's a little brain-bending. He's trying to drive home is if we can't answer it in light of the cross and the light of Jesus' love for us, the bad things that happen on this planet cannot be because God doesn't love you. It cannot be because he doesn't have affection for his creation. You can't, so you can't say that God's unloving because he lets evil happen. It's just not, it's not logically, you can't connect that dot. You can't see his work on the cross, his stepping into humanity, and believe that as a Christian, believe in the gospel, to believe that's to be true, and then say, he's mean, he must not like me. That's why he let this bad thing happen. You, you can't, it's, it's, it's a place of fallacy that you can't let your mind go to. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with, there's bad in the world, there's evil in the world, there's pain in the world, and God loves me. So it can't be because of his lack of love. So does he not love me enough? What's the problem? Why? Well, I'm going to try to share where my brain goes, which is often a scary place. So just be warned. We're going, I'm going to try to look at a big picture of God's love. And I see it as, uh, from a 30,000-foot view of all of creation, all of humanity, all of time, throw in a little bit of um, Einstein's theory of relativity and the idea of pre... So we'll just read the Bible, okay? In the beginning, it was good. In Genesis 1-1, we see in the beginning, God creates. Now, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 is the potential for a millennia. But what we see is that between in Genesis 1-1, it was in the beginning, God creates. There was a void. It was chaotic. It wasn't formed. It's not right. It's not, it's not good. So in the beginning, God creates. He makes. Then on the sixth day, the end of Genesis chapter 1, we see that it's good. It's very good. Adam and Eve have been created. You have chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 2, two tellings of the same narrative of creation. And Genesis 1, it's very short and sweet and to the point. In Genesis 2, you get um, how Adam is formed out of dirt and how Eve is formed from his rib. So they're together, they're co... You know, so you have that happening in 2. In 1, it's the snapshot that God made this place. And he made it good. It was good. So where did evil come from? It came from Adam and Eve's rebellion. Adam and Eve rejected God's command they rejected his love they rejected his authority and said i'm going to be captain of my own ship i'm going to be god the serpent comes in and tempts lies about the scripture and eve eats the apple adam doesn't stop her he's right there with her it's not the woman's fault if you've ever been taught that you were taught incorrectly it's very clear that eve was a sin of omission she did it and adam's sin was commission he refused to no wrong 
Eve was commissioned, she did it, she grabbed it, and Adam's sin was omission, he refused to protect his wife. I try to tell you that a hundred times, as many times as it can be brought up, because too often the church just said, it's a woman's fault, and it's not. Men, it's always our responsibility. That's why you see all the scripture that talks about leadership and taking care and protecting your family. It's always on us. So if you don't like that, tough. It's the Bible. Then, we, get, we roll into this understanding that it's broken. So creation is broken. What does God do? He throws Adam and Eve out of the garden. Why? Because it's one of the most loving things he could have done. In verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us. The us would be the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In knowing good and evil, now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Why did God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden? Because he didn't want them to live eternity separated from his love. He, he kicked them out of the garden for hope. He says, if, if they're here in the garden, they eat the tree of life and they live forever, and they know good and evil, they're going to know the truth, they're going to be forever in their sin. So like a good parent, he disciplined his children. It's like all of you are disciplined by parents, hopefully in good ways. Some of you are disciplined in horrible ways, which is, again, a sin of wickedness. We'll get to there in a second. But a good parent doesn't let their children just run around like crazy. A good parent says, hey, you, you probably shouldn't stick things in that electrical socket. Hey, you know what? Um, you need to listen to me because I have your best interests at heart. It's not okay for you to run on the sidewalk while we're going to the football game. You need to hold my hand. Well, Dad, I don't want to hold your hand. Oh, I'm, I'm six. This is yesterday in Savannah. She didn't say it, though. That's what she meant. I'm independent. I'm on my own. I can do it. No, as a good parent, I'm going to discipline her. And if she tries to pull away from my hand, she's going to get a firmer grip. And I can grip harder than my daughter. Why? Because I'm going to protect her. She sees it as I'm independent, I can do it, and I'm a good dad, and I'm going to protect her from traffic. Correct? So that's what you do. So God says, you're going to live forever in sin. If you stay in the garden, eat the tree of life, you'll be in sin forever. And that's not okay. So a good dad kicks his kids out of the garden and says, you're going to go work. You're going to live in this place of suffering. Why? For the hope that they would come back to the truth. We see Paul flesh this out in 1 Corinthians. When someone is in the church and they're in sin in the church, you're to go to that person. So we see Jesus talk about this in Matthew chapter 18. This is how you deal with church discipline. And when Paul does this, he tells the church in Corinth, you've got people in the church that are rejecting the truth of the gospel. So you need to go to them in love and say, hey, this isn't right. There's, there's stuff going on, and you're a child of God, I'm a child of God, and I'm going to help you through this. And if the person rejects that and says, you can't judge me, how dare you? How dare you? Then you take someone with you, take an elder, a couple other people. They come alongside you, and you go to the person again and say, hey, brother, this isn't okay. You've been heavy-handed with your wife. You've berated your children in public. There's issues. You've got sin. You were found out. We know it. You need to repent. Come to repent. Be part of the family. Come back to the family. And the person says, I didn't do that. No way. So Paul says that person should be removed from the church. Removed from the fellowship. But why? Why does he say removed from the fellowship? 
so they would come to the realization of their sins, repent, and come back to the fold. Like, we don't, we don't call people out in their sin because we think we're better. We would call people out in their sin so they would see the error of their ways, they would repent, and come back to the family. It's why we try to preach over and over and over again. There's nothing you have done that separates you from the love of God. Nothing. Even this, this former youth pastor in Indiana, as wicked as the things that he has done, he still has an avenue back to the grace of God if he would repent and proclaim the name of Jesus. Now, there's a real dark part of me that wished that wasn't true. But I can't read this book and say that I get to be judge, jury, and executioner. We all have a way back. So you see this theme throughout the scriptures that God would cast out people out of the garden so that they would understand they're not God. And they would come back to the realization that he is God. So this is one of the most loving things you could do. We then jump into Romans 1. So why, why, did, why is there bad in the world? So God makes it perfect. Humanity breaks it. God in his love says, you can't be near me. You can't live forever because your forever will be separated from me. So you need to go. Why does he say go? So that we would understand we need him. He never exposes your issues or exposes your sin to belittle you. He exposes you to the truth and to the light so you would come to him. It's always an act of love. So where does evil come from? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is summarizing why is there bad on this world. It's because God said, if you're not going to worship me, if you want to worship what's created instead of the creator, I'm going to let you. You've exchanged. you become futile in your thinking, foolish in your hearts, claiming to be wise. And he says, I'm, I'm going I'm to let you chase these empty wells. That's God's wrath. It's not hurricanes. It's not tornadoes. It's not cancer. It's not Ebola. It's he lets you chase your idols. That's God's wrath. It's not wars. It's not famines. It's not pests. It's none of that. He allows his creation to chase after false idols instead of loving him. I mean, think about it. Think logically about that. We, if you continue into Romans, you go, this, all of creation groans for the coming of Christ. Why? Because the planet doesn't want to form tornadoes. The planet doesn't want to form hurricanes. It wants to live in harmony and peace in a created order with God's creation. That even the trees groan for there to be no forest fires. The trees groan for there not to be all of creation groans for the coming of Christ. That our sin is trading worship of the creator for worshiping the created. Well, what's this look like? It looks like um, you have something I want. So I'm going to steal it from you. Why? Because I believe my way is best and I'm right. 
It's idolatry. Countries, nations forming, fighting each other. Beheadings in Iraq. Why? I'm in charge. I interpret this. I'm the one who's running this show. Relationships fall apart. People cheat. People, how? Why? Because someone at some point in that part of the relationship, nobody wakes up one morning and says, today the day I think I'll be unfaithful. I don't know that any person I've ever worked with or walked a couple through has ever been that way. It's been a slow switching saying, God gave me this person, but God doesn't want me this way, so I'm going to go find my own way. It's a consistent fight to be in charge. Matt Chandler, a pastor we talk about quite a bit because I like him, said it this way. So look at how the wrath of God is revealed. You and I fail to acknowledge him as God, which is idolatry. We fail to give him thanks. Why do we need to thank him? We did it, which is our pride. So we have this thing we value above and beyond God. We want this more than we want him, more than we want his will. So God responds by doing nothing and pours out his wrath by letting you chase your idol. Another quote. The greatest wrath God has to pour out on you is to leave you alone. To leave you alone in your self-exalting, self-centered life. And then you get exactly what you want for eternity. Because that is exactly what hell is. Devoid of God. It's not... We have to take responsibility. And you know, deep in your heart, if you trace back every sin, it's idolatry. It's saying, I'm God, I'm in charge, I'm in command, I make my own decisions, I know God's word says this, but I'm going to interpret it my way, I know this isn't good for my family, but I want this, I know it's all idolatry. Anything that you put as a barrier between you and God is an idol. It can be sports teams, it can be your children, it can be your work. When work becomes so overwhelming to where you worship your profession, the income it brings, and you don't have room or margin for God in it, then what's become your idol? Income. Is it bad to go work out and to have a healthy lifestyle and have a healthy body? I mean, my wife and I celebrated our 17th anniversary yesterday. And so as a fun little joke, I put a picture up on Facebook of us on our honeymoon. And it's very clear if you look at this picture that I ate that gentleman a long time ago. Like 80 pounds ago, kind of. And there's all kinds of jokes running around Facebook. And it was funny. And that's why I did it, because it was just funny. But is it, is it okay for me to want to maybe be a little leaner, to work out a little be a little healthier, to be able to run around with my kids more so I'm not worn out? At, I mean, I'm pushing 40. And I got little kids. So like, is, that, is it bad? No, it's not bad. But if it becomes my idol, if I exchange time with the gym for time with my children, it's idolatry. Because I care more about how I look in a mirror, which is one of the worst things that could ever be in a gym. You walk in a gym and see mirrors, it's probably not the gym that you should want to be in. Right? Like there's, there's an issue there where it's about self. It's about me. It's about the idolatry of my body. It just runs the gamut of all of history. It's idolatry. I'm right. I made the decision. I thought about it. I'm in charge. It's idolatry. So, God makes it good. He lovingly casts out Adam and Eve. His wrath is, go ahead, chase it. Chase those empty wells. Why? For the hope that you would be broken someday and say, this isn't doing it. How many people do you know 
were the healthiest eaters. They worked out the most. And then they got sick in spite of their supreme health. What caused them to finally be in a place of brokenness to say, I I did everything I'm supposed to do. I'm the healthiest eater in the world. God helped me fight through this sickness. Because everything else in their life, they had just ran with it. It's idolatry. Then we get to 2 Peter. So this is the big, this is what helps my brain. This is the why we still have suffering. This is the why. So if there's a piece of scripture you want to memorize or keep around, this is the one I always go to. 2 Peter, chapter 2. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason that God allows all of this to happen is because he loves you. And he loves all of creation, and he wants all of humanity to have the chance to come to the truth of who he is. He could end this now. He could have ended it after Adam and Eve and said, Trinity, boys, let's saddle up. Why mess with this? We created two, and they rejected this from the start. Kicks them out of the garden. It all grows. Society begins to thrive, and then what happens? Society quickly starts building towers to say, I'm going to reach God. He's like, no, 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 no. We're not doing this. Got to give you different languages. Scatter. You're supposed to spread the gospel. He comes down as his son. He comes down as Jesus Christ, God in flesh, and they reject the creator of the universe. He could have said, you know, you kill my boy, you're all done. What's he do instead? He shows us immense grace and mercy. So his patience can't be counted as slowness. We have to look at our finite brains to where we say, I get about 80 years if I'm lucky, maybe 110 if I, you know, do fish oil tablets or something. Like I'm going to have extra life, right? But then I'm done. We all, you've, heard, you've heard evangelists say this before. We all have a terminal illness. We're all going to die, correct? That usually is followed up by a big call to the altar. And, but it's the truth, isn't it? It's probably a little bit of our obsession with vampires and all these things. And we really want to live forever even though we're demons. That's not good. You know that, right? So we... It's, we can't count him as slow. He's going to end this. He's going to, but in his love, he says, I'm going to give you this stretch of time to come to faith in me, to bring as many along as you can, because when I come back, there's no do-overs. When I come back, it's over. When I come back, when I, when I send my son and he rides in on a white horse, it's over. There, you're either going to be in the family of God, in heaven, in the new heaven, a new earth, and in, in the creation restored, or you're going to be in eternity separated from him in hell one or the other so god's love is to keep back that from happening but we have to deal with it we have to deal with those consequences peter continues when it's over it's over but the day of the lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed so when he comes back it's over so until then, you have, like, when, when I have weeks like this last week and news is dropped like that and I'm, I'm angry and I'm sad and I move to tears and then I'm, I'm more angry and then I get, like, I, 
Savannah has professed a faith in Jesus Christ. Eli has professed a faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized. If Jesus came back today, my family and I would all be in heaven. I'm okay with him coming back today. My work here is done. If he comes back today, great. Right? But isn't that idolatry? Well, I just want him to come back for me and my family and in my suffering and in my pain. Isn't that just another form of idolatry? It's all about me and my family. As a Christian called to expand the kingdom, we don't have that option. We're called as we live and breathe to spread the name of Jesus Christ to the nations. So until then, we're going to have to endure suffering. Until he comes back, we're going to have to endure suffering. Which leads us to our mission in Matthew. So when's he going to come back? Why hasn't he come back? Because there's still work to do. Oh, he's coming. It's promised. He's coming, but he's not coming back until the work, the work's done. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So until all the nations of the earth hear the gospel, have the opportunity, Jesus can't come back. So if you really want him to come back, then you should have a heart for missions. You should donate time and money and energy and prayers for the world to know. This doesn't mean that you have to jump on a plane and go to those places because you have down the road a bunch of international students that come to this university that you could be sharing the gospel with them. Some of you may be called to go to a dark place. Some of you may be called to go in right now in the world. If you do any, just do a brief Google search. Christians are the most persecuted people on the planet right now. Tens of thousands of people are being killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in this country, we get a little irritated when someone debates us or disagrees with us. But around the world, people profess a faith. Um, tomorrow night, I'm not an advocate of... There will be an interview on the Fox News channel of the young woman who got pregnant, professed her faith in Jesus Christ. She got pregnant, had her baby in jail in Africa. And she's going to be interviewed that she refused to renounce her faith. And so she was supposed to be murdered for apostasy, which means she switched her faith. And they finally let her go, worked it out, and she's in this country. And she's going to have an interview talking about her faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of death of her and her unborn child. Now for us, it's real easy to go to Starbucks and be philosophical and sip on some coffee and say, I just don't know about God and is he really good? And around the world, they're being destroyed for believing in Jesus Christ. Until we reach the nations... He can't come back. How do we know? Like, what are the nations? People would like to debate this. I don't know. Does it mean every language group, every continent? I don't really know. Well, here's just the basic logic. I like to boil it down to like southern Indiana kind of redneck mode where I grew up. We're all still here. So Jesus hasn't come back yet. Therefore, the work's not done. So maybe keep working. I, I mean, that's just kind of, it's pretty easy, isn't it? We should care about the nations. But then we see the end in the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's key. Don't forget that. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I want that to be tomorrow. Honestly. Like, I don't know how you can turn on the TV and not go, Jesus, please just come back. But that's not how he works, which frustrates me, but he didn't ask me. He cares so much. He has a greater love, and it, it, it makes me realize that I need to have a bigger heart as a pastor. Because when I get pushed a little bit, sometimes I just want to escape. I want to fly off to heaven and just escape. Like, come back tomorrow, Jesus, be great. But is that God's heart? No. His heart is to reach the nations so that all would know. So my heart needs to be more molded to his. So that's my prayer always, is to bend it to be more like yours. Care in more extravagant ways that I haven't even tried to yet. But you have to understand that this is a new heaven and new earth. He's not, he's not making a way for us to escape this place. He's redeeming it. Like you have to get out of your head this idea that heaven is clouds and wings and floating around playing harps. It's just not. If you can find that in the scriptures, I would love for you to show that to me. What happens every time an angel appears to the people on this planet? They fall on their faces in fear because a messenger of the Lord has arrived. Like it's not, oh, Cupid, he's so cute. He's got a little note from the Lord. They're amazed by the glory and holiness that's been imparted. I mean, so the new heaven, new earth is a new heaven. A new, there's going to be new stars, new constellations, a new earth for us to live on. It's about redeeming creation, not escaping it. He's restoring the Garden of Eden as it's supposed to be. Our relationships will be more full and rich than we've ever imagined. As much as I love my bride, we celebrate our anniversary. There's times when I resent her, she resents me, she questions my motives, I question her motives. That's who we are as a husband and wife. That's just the natural order of putting two sinful people into a, into a relationship together and saying, go live together. Only by the truth of the gospel and our commitment to Jesus Christ do we make it through those times. But in the new heaven and new earth, you don't even have to think about that stuff. Just think about no sin, no selfishness, no idolatry, no wickedness, no trying to manipulate to get your way, no trying to... It's just going to be the purest... It's still going to be a planet. You're still going to have a resurrection body. You're still going to have jobs, probably. We don't know. You're still going to have... All we know is that the brightness of God is going to shine and we won't need the sun. Isn't that beautiful? And then this, no more crying. No more pain. No more mourning. No more suffering. No more getting the call that you need to go see the doctor because you have cancer. No more calls to say that your child is sick. No more random calls that your mom has died. That is never going to happen in the new heaven and new earth. You can't see God as wicked and mean. He made it perfect. Our sin broke it. He lovingly said, I I have to let you out of this place and I'm going to let you chase your idols. Why? So that you would come back to the truth. That you would come back. Isn't that, some of you parents are a little older, isn't that what you do when you have like a teenage child? 
or maybe now like the middle school child. Oh, you want to do it your way? Go ahead. Why do you do that? You know that's going to fail. You know they're going to get hurt in it. You know that it's going to be bad. Why do you let them do that? Because they have, they have to come back and say, you're right, Dad. You're right, Mom. I, sh- I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have went down that road. Do you forgive me? Of course I do. You're my child. Come back home. It's the exact same thing. And then he promises, I'm going to come back, but I have to hold back my hand. I have to hold this back because I he loves extravagantly his creation. And then we know the promise. We know the end of the story. He's coming back. So that's great. Like, that's the 30,000 foot view. How do we deal with this? How do you and I deal with this? Well, I just want to look at a couple passages of scripture. In the Psalms, we know that half of the Psalms are laments. The other half are praises. So in Psalm 42.1, we see, As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. O God, my soul thirsts for you. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We see it in the Psalms. Half are, where are you, God? But I'm going to trust you. And the other half are, you're amazing, God. I can't believe you would even talk to me or reveal things to me. We see in the prophet Habakkuk, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Everything's failing him, but yet he's going to see his joy in the Lord, that he's his strength. Paul, the greatest evangelist in the Bible, I think we could say. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That everything is arbitrary except knowing Jesus. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Garbage. It's all garbage. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That he counts everything as garbage, except knowing Christ. Now, am I saying that we should just, like, be flippant about our pain? Of course not. To just discount and say, well, I really can't talk to him about my suffering because Mike just read some Bible verses and Paul's awesome and he said it's all rubbish so I can't share my life with people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying these are real people you can read throughout the scriptures that had real problems, real sufferings, and they were clinging to the cross. Jesus himself in Psalm 22 What's Jesus say to the, his dad on the cross? What's he say to God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that's almost always taught incorrectly. It's the beginning of Psalm 22. Jesus wasn't saying, God, you left me alone. Where are you? I'm suffering. How dare you? Why have you left me alone? Where am I? It's the beginning of Psalm 22 which has some very prophetic words about the exact circumstance that Jesus is in, and then it says, you're my God. 
So as we kind of close, I'm going to read a big chunk of this. One final thought, and then we'll be done. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. But not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their wide mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll praise you. Like, Do you see this rolling? Like he's talking about the cross. Psalm 22 written hundreds of thousands of years, hundreds of years before Jesus goes to the cross. Divide my clothes, pierce my hands. Jesus is speaking a prophetic word in Psalm 22 to the people that are around the cross watching him die. And what's he saying it? I'm wounded, I'm hurt, I'm afflicted. These people are around me, they want to kill me, but I will praise your name. I will praise you, God. I'll praise you, Father. You're the one. So if Jesus Christ, God in flesh, comes to this planet and suffers out of his love for you, goes to the cross out of joy, and even in the midst of his pain, He says, I trust you, Father. That should be our posture. I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, think about it. Jesus is on a cross. He's been beaten for a day. He's being destroyed in his physical body as he speaks. And yet he quotes scripture. He professes his faith in the Father who he's lived with for eternity. That should be us. Not easy. Please don't walk out here thinking I'm saying just read your Bibles and all go away. That is not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that a relationship with Jesus will get you through everything, even unto death, when you'll be walked right into the arms of the Savior. So as we close, is God light? And in him, no darkness at all. Yes. I believe with everything that I have. There are days that I feel darker than others. But I know he's good. So it doesn't drive me to question him. It drives me to see him more fully in his word. So we have two questions. 
two realities. In the end of life, the end of this, you get God. If your hope is for a mansion on a hill, if your hope is to like have people serving you, if your idea of paradise is sitting on a lounge chair by the ocean eating grapes and whatever you eat in a lounge chair on the ocean, then you have a horrible understanding of who God is and what heaven's like. You get God. That's why that the end of our purpose on this planet is to enjoy God, to love him and enjoy him forever. You enjoy him now, you enjoy him today, and you enjoy him forever. That is the, it's going to be the existence you're going to live for eternity, enjoying the presence of God. But until then, we have to get through this. And we have a mission to tell everyone that he's everything, that Jesus is enough. He's enough. In the midst of cancer, Jesus is enough. I'm going to pray for healing. I'm going to pray for the medicine to work. I'm going to pray to get out of this bed. But Jesus is enough. I want the best for my kids. Like you, you hear about stuff like we've heard this week. And it's like, I don't, I love and trust a lot of you, but I don't want you near my children anymore. Like if I can't even trust a pastor, who am I supposed to trust? Right? Well, how am I going to get through that? How am I going to trust Jesus with just my kids? How am I, that Jesus is everything. He's everything. I'm going to trust that he's going to take care of my kids no matter what. They've been saved by grace through faith alone. He's going to take care of them whatever comes their way. My daughter's six. When that little punk at 14 breaks her heart, I'm going to want to slap the taste out of his mouth, right? But am I going to do that? Of course not. Of course not. Jesus, if I can get her to understand with the fullness of her soul that Jesus is her everything, he'll get her through that. He'll get her through that. It's not me. Like my job as a dad and as a pastor is to point people to Jesus and get out of the way. Is he your everything? Is Jesus your everything? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you today with this really heavy topic of your goodness. And so I pray that as we sing this last song, um, that we would see that we are found whole in you and you alone. That we love you with every part of our being and you're everything. Help us to connect the dots from Genesis 1 to, re- to the end of Revelation, the end of your word, the whole Bible that we see this theme of trusting you for everything. Help us to fight our idolatry because we are prone to put things on a pedestal. Help us. Help us to put you first. Help us to see you as lovely. Help us to see you as awesome, omnipotent, sovereign, and in charge of our whole lives. And let us rest in that knowing that your love surrounds us wherever we go. We love you, Jesus. Amen.